This is the Journal of American History podcast for May 2016. Robert Orsi is a professor of religious studies and history and Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University. He researches, writes, and teaches about religion in the United States in past and in contemporary contexts with a particular focus on American Catholicism. He is also interested in how religion developed as a subject of inquiry from early modernity to the present and in questions of method and theory in the study of religion. His scholarship draws on history, ethnography, religious studies, and psychological theories of imagination and intersubjectivity to study the religious practices of men, women, and children. Professor Orsi is the author and editor of numerous books, The Madonna of 115th Street, Faith and Community in Italian Harlem, between Heaven and Earth, the Religious Worlds People Make and the Scholars Who Study Them. Thank you, St. Jude, editor of the Cambridge Companion to Religious Studies and Gods of the Cities, in which Professor Orsi has a superb, lengthy introduction. And the most recent book, which we will be focusing on in this podcast, History and Presence. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, Ed, it's a, it's a pleasure, a real pleasure. It's even more of a pleasure to know you're sitting there in my beloved Bloomington uh, on, a, on a spring day. So I can, I can imagine what it looks like all around you. So, Indeed. Yeah. Uh, for listeners, uh, uh, Bob Orsi was for many years a professor in the Department of Religious Studies here and uh, uh, a loss when, when he left, but has continued his wonderful work at both Harvard and Northwestern. So uh, as I read... The book, and I, I want you to lay out for reader, uh, for listeners uh, who are not going to be only historians of religion, uh, but historians uh, of many fields uh, who I think will be interested in the challenges you present uh, in our thinking about presence. It occurred to me that this issue of how we as historians deal with presence without reducing it in some way or interpreting it away, uh, as you point out so many times incisively in the book, has really been a theme in all of your books. At least it seems to me from having read everything uh, that it's there. So can you talk a little bit about uh, this enduring engagement that you have with the challenge of what you call abundant presence and how it's led you to where you are now? Absolutely. Um, thanks for asking that, that sort of overview type question. I, um, first of all, I, wanna, I do want to specify one thing, and that is uh, part of the aim, I think, of history and presence is, was to develop, at least call attention to the need for a more robust vocabulary for presence. So I'm at great pains in the book, as you know, at many times, not to say, I never say that only Roman Catholics, um, only Roman Catholics adhere to have a concept of real presence, I mean, a concept of presence. I mean, that is not what I'm saying. Calvinists, I mean, all kinds of other Christian groups and so forth have, other Christian denominations have a concept of presence. But there's a specific kind of Roman Catholic presence that I argue what I, call, what I call real presence, I mean, that's a term borrowed from Catholic theology, 
that specific kind of presence. It's that kind of presence in things, in paper, in objects, in stone, in, in places that can be interacted with, engaged, smelled, seen, heard. It's that presence of the supernatural that I think is disallowed from early modernity forward, that it becomes the bad presence. That's the bad kind of presence. And there are lots of other good kinds of presence, but they're always carefully distinguished from this bad Catholic presence. So that's what, I mean, the book begins, as you know, in sort of tracing out the history or the fate of presence from uh, the Eucharistic debates of the 16th century, which were very difficult to, you know, they're so complex and so technical. But to get into those debates, which, you know, when you look at them, were about how is God present in the world? Um, so it was, a, it was a very consequential question for that era and since, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's where ways parted. So the book traces that. But you're right, it's a theme that goes throughout all my work. You know, the Madonna, uh, which you listed as one of my publications, that was a long time ago, and it, was, it helped me... I hope it also helps readers to remember that, I mean, when I wrote that book, I was searching for a language to talk about this phenomenon, which was, this phenomenon mean, I mean, the Italian festa, the presence of this Madonna in the streets and in the homes of East Harlem, there was not a lot of language to talk about, to talk about that, how to understand that historically, beyond the sort of Durkheimian, you know, she is the, she is the figure of the community. But I could already see in the Madonna, in part because I, I, I got into her relations with individuals, with people, I could see that that wasn't enough. That for one thing, there was, there was the relations between the community and other sites, domestic, political, and so on, was very fluid. And the Madonna was involved in all of them in many ways. And also that she was not a completely predictable or safe figure. And that was to me that I mean that began the process of sort of de- detaching myself from a certain functionalist view of figures like the Madonna, and then with Jude focused much more on the unpredictable holy figure. But I think in both of those books, I really thought I was talking about Catholicism, and of course I was, but I slowly began to realize that I was talking about a kind of religiosity exemplified by Catholics that had become invisible or inaccessible to critical scholarship and then it got unnoticed between heaven and earth is mostly about the intersubjectivity and the relations between um, sacred beings and people in historical circumstances but history and presence is really an effort to give some careful theoretical and historical attention to the fate of real presence and and then to answer the question that i get asked at every time i give a talk on this and, and that is what would history look like what would the writing of history look like if we took seriously your challenge, my challenge, to put the gods back into history and mm-hmm. to see them as, as agents of history? So, so that's the trajectory. I mean, it has been, it has, it's definitely the case that it has been a path followed from one book to another. Let me, uh, uh, thank you for that. Let me read just a bit from the epilogue, uh, A Metric of Presence. I'm proposing that we let the gods out of their assigned places and that we approach history and religion through a matrix of presence. Once the gods return and once their presence is acknowledged, functionalism yields to a messier, less predictable, and perhaps less recognizable past, one that is not bound to a single account of human life 
or to a single short period of time or to a single ontology. From the perspective of a metric of presence, it may be that, contra Hume, one day historians and scholars of religion will find it impossible to believe there ever lived on this planet counterparts of theirs who thought it was possible to study history or religion without the gods as interlocutors and provocateurs, as agents of both the given and the impossible, as malignant spirits, as harbingers of excess, as the ones who hold the memories that individual humans and entire societies forget, as bringers of succor and pain. That's a, a very challenging paragraph for for any historians. Can you talk a bit about what, to use your term, an abundant historiography might look like? And I don't, maybe you want to use some of the case studies, because uh, I should tell listeners that History and Presence is a series of case studies where you take up this challenge of how, without reducing to psychological phenomena, uh, without interpreting it away into a kind of flat functionalism, um, presence takes on agency and and interacts with with people in much more active ways than we usually think about that is that is that a fair characterization that is that is um, I, mean, I think I think my thinking about this really begins with well as I, as I say repeatedly in the book you know I am a historian and my first my first intellectual love as a as a graduate student was social history in the 1970s and i really any theory i do i do at the soul of a social historian so um it has a lot of social history in this book as you know so i began with the, i began with an empirical fact which was that when people talk about their interaction with special beings let's call them special beings for the time being when they talk about them they always say that this being came to me. They say, it, you know, it came, it came. I was surprised by this. I wasn't expecting this. Now, of course, the beings who come, come within worlds of, particular worlds of meaning and so forth and practice. So, as I say, you know, there's not going to be, it's unlikely that a person in the Bronx, an Italian-American in the Bronx is going, or in Manhattan is going to experience, has an experience of Krishna. So obviously there's cultural grounding to all of this, but people always say this came as something outside of me, and I thought, well, what does that mean? Hmm. And my favorite story in the book, and one one of my favorite stories in the book, is the story of the woman who has uh, the vision of the Virgin Mary during at the very end of the Second World War. Uh, and as you may recall, she's desperate about her brothers, who she knows are heading into the the Pacific Theater. She wants. She feels uh, she's a failure because she can't protect them. She doesn't know what to do. She's desperate and anxious, so she does what she's been told to do by everybody, including by her priests. She vows to make more sacrifices. She vows to collect more paper, more tin, more spring, string. You know, I'll do all of this, she says. And then in the middle of all this, she has this vision of the Virgin Mary who tells her, if you do those things, you're going to waste your time. You're wasting your time, basically. Those are not going to help your brothers. And you know, as I say in the book, I can't imagine a more subversive message at that mm. particular moment. You know, to say it's not going to work. Um, you, what you should be doing is why don't you get together with other women and pray together for your men, with me there among you. And then, you know, at one point, at one point in the vision, the, the Blessed Mother says to her, you know, when your men come home, 
they're going to be they're going to be hurt. They're going to be hurt. They're going to be missing limbs. They're going to be psychologically, you know, this is not her, her language necessarily, but, you know, they're going to be psychologically damaged. They're going to be wounded. And, you know, contrast that with the image of returning World War II, you know, with some, I mean, there was the best days of our lives, but for the most part, you know, I don't know that people were that focused on the long and traumatic aftermath of the war, but here was Mary basically warning this woman, you know, prepare yourself for that. And I was struck every time I read that story by two things. One, by the subversive quality of the message, which was not what this woman was expecting to hear, I don't think. Uh, being as, as the way she tells the story, she wasn't expecting to have this vision. I mean, she was completely freaked out uh, uh, about her brothers. She didn't think she'd have... Oh, and I left out. The first thing Mary tells her to do is go find a friend and talk to a friend, which, you know, was pretty good advice, actually. Um, the second thing is I was always struck by the way historians, who, who, when they've paid any attention to this story at all, which mostly they haven't, which is not completely the fault of historians, because I think the church, the Catholic church in Detroit, where it happened, was you know, not particularly interested in the story getting around. They've always seen it as an artifact of the Cold War. Hmm. But, but that's a misreading of... I mean, this is why I keep saying there's an, there are empirical questions here. You know, it is true that in the vision... This woman sees a bomb coming through the, the roof, but at nowhere in the vis, vision is that bomb called an atomic bomb. And there were lots of bombs coming through roofs during the Second World War. The atomic, that was to read it backwards from the Cold War, uh, back into that, and to say, well, this is an artifact of the Cold War, but it's not an artifact of the Cold War. So I, I, I guess that the, the challenge there is to ask historians to at least as an experiment, to look at the ways in which real presences, whether it's real presences of the dead or of angels or of demons or of Jesus, the way in which they complicate the narratives that we'd like to tell about the past and the way in which they introduce unpredictability uh, into, into these stories. Are there, are there historians that are doing that, that, that come to mind, Bob, as you talk about this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, nowhere do I want to say that I'm the only one. I mean, I've been, I, I, uh, the subaltern historian Deepesh Chakrabarti, for example, calls for something very similar to this um, uh, in his uh, book on provincializing Europe. Um, I actually think one of the best books, and I, you'll remember this from a long time ago, I've always thought that one of the best books uh, on religious history was a Genovese's Roll Jordan Roll, because I thought in the chapters on religion, he actually was paying attention. Um, now, it's, it's no accident or coincidence that Genovese was raised Catholic, and so he was attentive to certain things, I think, as well as his Marxism. So yeah, they're doing it. Um, but I think what I, what, I wanted, what I wanted to see and what I wanted to play with was actually playing it out in particular instances, actually seeing how it might work in particular instances, such as the, the, the long chapter on the dead, uh, which is about what happens when the dead return and make demands on the living, mm. that the living have to then, first of all, to try to figure out what the dead are talking about and what they want, and then figure out how they can meet those demands at a moment when much of the culture around them is, in fact, uh, moving in the opposite direction. Talk a little bit, if you would, two of the case studies that I found really fascinating, both of them you, you put yourself 
into the situations as a historian to struggle with uh, this really fascinating case study of the bereaved family who lost their son and the miracle that, that happens uh, in, in this small shrine that they have and eventually you and a small group of people go there. Uh, so that case study, I think, would be really fascinating for listeners. And then take us to uh, it's one of my my favorite places, uh, Santuario Shamayo in New Mexico. Well, uh, the first thing to say about that shrine is that the story of that shrine cannot be told apart from its its social history, the social history of the world around it. So it takes place at a particular moment in American Catholic history. It takes place at a, at a time when American Catholic burial customs and death rituals were changing, along with, in the broader culture, problems about the definition of death, um, a certain fuzziness at the borders of life and death and so forth. So this is why I say this is theory with the soul of a social historian, because there's always a social historical context. This family had a child who died from a blood cancer, and he was five years old. And to make a long story short, there's a lot of details, as you know. Um, uh, Several days after the funeral, the mother comes home and uh, is sitting in the little boy's bedroom where there's an image of a holy figure on the wall, and she gradually becomes aware that there's a a dot or a circle in in the image. And over the next couple of days, the dot grows, the circle grows until it's actually the face of her dead child. You know, and at that point, at that point, you know, what do what do scholars do at this point? I mean, one can explain it away. One can, you know, there's all kinds of things one can do. But what did she do at that point? What she did was she began a series of tests to see if she was going crazy. So. First, she brings her husband in, and he sees it, and then she brings her children in, and they see it. And then, and then there's a question of does is this meant to be seen by anybody outside of the family? So each step along the way, there were questions that they were working on that that were thrust upon them by the appearance of this face of a dead child in in this image. They then they have another test, and it's decided that they decide that it's meant to show it to everybody. And they eventually it, uh, uh, there's a shrine, a small, very private shrine. Uh, which nonetheless, although they don't do any advertising or anything, attracts visitors from around the world, actually, uh, in the thousands um, over time. And uh, then, then the, visitors, the visitors see not only the child, the little boy, but slowly the visitors begin to see their own dead in the image. And then as I describe at one point, very, very frightening, the visitors see um, living members. And this creates an issue what's going on with this. And again, they have to work this out. And they decide that God simply wants to call attention to people who need their care. And as you know, it ends with uh, me and some friends making a pilgrimage to this. uh, And there I really tried to capture the density of emotions in a pilgrimage. You know, if there's any idea that a pilgrimage is singular in its emotions or in its attitudes, they're not. You know, people go for lots of different reasons, ranging from the truly serious to the uh, to the highly hilarious, with a lot in between and often not separable. So I went on pilgrimage to this shrine, um, and I had been told by the uh, the man and woman whose house it was in that we needed to bring a coffee cake and some coffee uh, to, so that they could make. And we we drove out to the shrine and. Um, and there was a long period where the woman told us what to expect, and then we went up to the room, 
it was a very tiny little room and I described in the book that we were all over each other and uh, eventually we began seeing things in in there and um I saw I saw a figure of a nun for example and I have no idea I, all I can say is that I saw it um, I didn't see what others were seeing necessarily, although I think a friend of mine had seen the nun and said, hey, do you see that nun over there? Which was part of the evening. Everybody was saying to each other, hey, do you see that? What do you see? Uh, my friend's girlfriend started crying at one point because she saw some things that really upset her. Um, and then we ended downstairs with trying to figure this out. But I think what was what's so striking about all of this was this was all the structure of it really was the dead coming and making their desires and wishes known. Um, so at a time when they weren't supposed to do that. I mean, the Catholicism in this period was really drawing, was, was, as I think common in modernity, was drawing a much tighter barrier between the living and the dead. Um, the story of Chamayo involved a student of mine who um, had uh, leukemia, was diagnosed with leukemia. And in the, in the course of it, uh, during her treatments, which were horribly invasive and painful and body-changing and life-changing, Somebody brought her back from the shrine of Chimayo in New Mexico, where there is said to be a well of holy dirt, dirt that is, there are many legends associated with the shrine, and I, I, I parse some of those, yeah. uh, dirt that is supposed to have healing properties. So she goes to Chimayo, and a lot of the chapter, as, as you know, is, is, is a description of the shrine and how people experience the shrine and the role that narrative plays, but then, and, and images and pictures, and how the pictures and the narratives mediate people's relationships with each other and their relationship with sacred figures. And, and then the, the, the culminating moment is when this woman tries to bring this dirt into a hospital for when she's going to have bone marrow transplant, which causes a huge crisis in the hospital. Um, but, you know, she succeeded in the end, and I really, you know, there was, she was gradually, her life, she was gradually disappearing in this whole event. I mean, she was getting thinner and, and more wasted, and this, this dirt, this dirt became very important to her. It was like, it was, it was a presence, and the dirt did something fundamental to that experience of the hospital, of the cancer, that I don't think those can be understood without reference to the dirt. Um, mm. And so she eventually, as I say in the story, in the book, she, um, she still has this bag of dirt. She has slept with it under her pillow for many years. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, her relationship to relationship to it is complicated and it's not easy to, you know, describe or define, but it was very consequential. I, I really appreciated it. Uh, both of these chapters, Bob, as you present these case studies, so carefully and compellingly that all of the senses are involved you know you uh, up in the the room with your friends um the pilgrims at chamayo you know it's hot and they're sweaty and they smell and they're they're touching each other and they're rubbing dirt on themselves or putting dirt in their mouth and they're listening uh to uh, uh to songs to chant um so this is this is a, a a rich topic for the study of the senses, isn't it? It is, and I also think, I mean, I really think that once real presence, uh, as I have talked about, is returned to the historical imagination, I, I think then other then those other things come with it. Because, you know, I mean, I think so. I, I've been thinking about um, 
the current election and whether or not, you know, this notion in any way speaks to the current election. I think, you know, part of the problem is that whenever we think about, I mean, I think whenever commentators think about religion, they always fall back on the kind of modern understanding of religion as something interior, as ideas, as precepts, whether they're political precepts or ethical precepts or whatever. But they don't think of it in terms of people's relationships, people's consequential relationships with each other and with these beings. Mm. And I think that that's, uh, and once, once you think in those terms, then all this other stuff comes back, the, the senses come back, and the immediacy of the environment come back, comes back. And then the in, inextricability of these various stories, um, the pieces, you know, the individual pieces of these stories which don't always cohere and which are, um, in which there are narrative breaks or uh, inconsistencies, those also are part of it. Um, so it's a challenge to get beyond a certain sort of already known quality of history, right? We know that this is how Catholics are going to behave, or we know that this is how a religious person is going to behave. And part of it is to, to say, no, actually, you don't, because there's a certain unpredictability in this, and you need to study exactly what's going on. I couldn't help but think, as I was reading, uh, and this will be no surprise to you, about the kinds of presences, I don't know if it's special beings or, or different kinds of presences uh, that I've engaged in my own work. Um, right. I remember years ago, after Sacred Ground, Americans and Their Battlefields came out, uh, and I, I didn't write about this because I didn't know quite how to write about it, and I thought all anybody would say is, well, you know, you have a very vivid imagination, you you know, you've been studying battlefields too long, or, well, of course you're projecting, you know, onto this. But uh, at the Little Bighorn, uh, it was very interesting to me that uh, none of the Crow Indians, and the Little Bighorn is surrounded by, by Crow Reservation land, uh, none of the Crows who work for the National Park Service would stay at the battlefield after the sun went down. And... Um, I don't know exactly why still, because they were reticent to talk about it. Certainly, I think out of respect for the dead, but I suspect it's more than that. One of the National Park Service historians, a member of the Crow tribe, someone I came to know fairly well over the years I was going to Little Bighorn, told me once in a very matter-of-fact way that she had seen spectral figures on the field. And then right. we went on to talk about something else. So that, 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 But that one sentence was said in this completely matter-of-fact way. Uh, I didn't come back to it with her because I didn't really know at that point sort of how to do it without seeming um, inappropriately skeptical or trying to reduce it to something else. Uh, and I've thought about this over the years, how I was... I've, there was no way to talk about it. There was no way to write about it, at least with the resources that I had. And yet, in some ways, it, it made sense to me that places where, in this case, such violence took place, uh, that there would be a thickness. Uh, Patty Limerick talks in Something in the Soil, you know, about haunted landscapes of America where presence are, presences are sort of there and brought to life or brought out of an inner state by the stories that people bring to them. Um, uh, a Chinese anthropologist who visited America couldn't believe that we didn't 
recognize the ghosts that were on these landscapes. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about these different kinds of presences, you know, that are, that are on the, on the land. Uh, so that, I guess that's the first topic. And the second one, maybe which has to do with the hunger for this other world is when I was writing about Oklahoma city for many evangelical Christians, the bombing in Oklahoma city in April 19th, 1995 kind of ripped away the illusory veil of a secular world and revealed this world, you know, full of angels and, and other beings who were active in, you know, taking the, the murdered children's souls and in some cases bodies, you know, up to heaven. Uh, and it was, it was stunning because it's an example, at least it seemed to me of a, a Protestantly populated world uh, that, that we normally don't see. So those are sort of two instances that, that have stuck with me and came back to me as writing about as I was reading your book, and then finally, because uh, I'm interested in your response to this at Gettysburg years and years and years ago when I went there first in high school, I read an account of one of the Gettysburg guides uh, who said every time he went on the field, he felt a brooding omnipresence, and I've loved that term ever since because it just seems so true to me. Why should we not be surprised that these places are transformed by the events that have happened on them and that there's a fullness and a thickness there that if you're not tone deaf, uh, makes your experience of the place somewhat different than, than just going to consume it? Wow. Those are incredible stories. Those are beautiful, powerful stories, I have to say. And the first thing that I, I want to say is that it, I really am not claiming in the book at all anywhere that, and I, and I began with this, and I and I'll keep saying this in the hope. I know you don't need to understand it, but I, I, I suspect many readers will need to understand it, which is that I'm not talking about something that's owned only by Catholics. Of course, I'm I'm talking about something that 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 was associated with Catholics was prohibited largely because of its association with Catholics that then, but then moved out into the world and became a, 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 a border across which, you know, historians and others ought not to go. Uh, this was a weird way of being in the world. This was not an acceptable way. We don't know how to, we don't know what to do with this, mm. but you know, that story of the ghosts in the battlefield, that's, you know, it would, I'm, I'm intrigued by many aspects of that story. First, of course, is your own discomfort. Uh, yep. And, you know, I, yeah, what do you do? And you know that, that there isn't a lot of tolerance for this. No. Um, and the thing is, you know, I have to say, uh, I'm always asked, when I've, been, when I've given talks about the material that's in the book, invariably, and you can almost anticipate the question, invariably mm-hmm. I am asked, well, do you believe in? <laughs> and that's like the Virgin Mary. So, and. What I decided, that, the way I'm going to answer that from now on is that, no, I actually believe in history. And I believe in what, what I believe in people's experiences in the past, in the past and, and, and I believe in culture. So this woman tells you that she sees these. You, it's something that we have to think about. Yes. Um, and as you say, you know, what, um, what then do we do? How do we develop the language to talk about them? You know, and it would, I'd, be, I'd be fascinated to know if you can find her again to, you know, what, what is her experience of those beings? The story about the evangelicals is, is striking actually, because I, I do think that this way of being religious, there, there was a, 
a kind of curtain was placed across it. And then, I mean, but at this, as I say in the book, you know, the prohibition against real presence also created, as such prohibitions do, a uh, desire for real presence. And this is evident in the Romantic movement, you know, in, in Romanticism. It's evident in oh, all kinds of contexts, you know, the, new, the love of angels and, uh, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I'd be curious to know what that experience was like. And I'd want to hear more from people about, you know, how they knew this and what their sense of it was. And, yeah. But, you know, you could almost hear the voices, you know, you could almost hear the voices of colleagues saying, oh, come on, come on. Of course. You know, you're taking this, please, please. And, you know, I don't, I don't quite know, uh, you know, how, how to convince them that this is part of the empirical world. Yeah. Yeah, I, a couple of other things occur to me. Um, one is the kind of presence, and, and this, it seems to me, is almost a kind of civil Catholic sensibility, but the kind of presence that there are in founding documents or sacred relics of American experience. Um, uh, you know, sometimes jokingly, I'll ask in class, well, look, you know, we got this big national debt. Why don't we take the Declaration of Independence and sell it to somebody for billions and billions and billions of dollars. We can Xerox the thing, right? We'll have the, you know, millions of copies of it. And all my students start laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? Uh, it's just a piece of paper, isn't it? He said, well, no, it's much more than a piece of paper. And so we sort of talk about that. Or I say, well, what about people from overseas who go and visit the William Peterson house across the street from Ford's Theater where the Lincoln pillow is with his blood on it? I mean, we, I'm embarrassed. Why don't we wash it so there's a clean pillowcase and people start laughing? Um, mm. Because mm. these are these are presences in Absolutely. a way, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're coming close to the, the kind of real presence that I have in mind. And they are presences. Absolutely. I'd be curious, you know, as you know, there's a chapter in the book about reading and or about what Catholics do with texts and images. Um, and there's a story of a woman whose mother is dying, and the priest comes and he gives he cuts a piece of a holy card and, and has her mother eat the chew the piece of the holy card. And then throughout, there's the different ways in which a people of, of real presence interact with with printed media. You know, and I'd be curious. Your story about the declaration is uh, is interesting. I'd be curious if people try to touch it, if people lean forward and kiss it. I mean, there's so many museums are of great interest to me lately, and, and because in part because they are places where where figures of presence are gathered. I, yes. I just went to the spectacular exhibit at the Asia Society in New York, in which there were all of these fabulous Buddha images, which on tiny little cards it said. This statue was once in the middle of a shrine and was and and was uh, was prayed to by pregnant women who were uh, who were hoping for safe childbirth or who wanted to get people who wanted to get pregnant. So all of a sudden, this statue that's sitting in a, in a very quiet, very darkened museum, and people are standing in front of it. You think, no, no, actually, this is the wrong place. This is the wrong way to interact with this thing. This thing was made to be touched and spoken to and. The expectation was in some way that it was hearing you and it was listening and responding. So museums really enforce this, uh, this code of, uh, uh, of absence. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'd be very curious if people try to kiss the 
lean forward and kiss the Declaration of Independence um, or what they want to do with it. I, th- I think if they could, because it's behind glass, people, they they want to touch these things. As you point out, uh, you wrote about uh, what one of the TV preachers who's who asked people watching on TV to, to put their hand, you know, on, on the screen um, uh, as, a, as a way of kind of touching whatever he, he was offering them. But it seems to me that the material evidences of these presence, I'm thinking of, of stuff in museums, for example, is a kind of wormhole to the past, for example. Uh, you know, why does the Holocaust Museum uh, have the kind of large material presence that it does? Because without it, their presentation of the Holocaust lacks the the material. Why does right, the, why right. does a nine eleven museum have you know the gigantic powerful uh, remnants of uh, of the building that you know you you can touch um, mm-hmm. and see and smell? Um, yeah, yeah. Bob, uh, sort of as as we wind up, can you say a little more about? what you mean by abundant historiography. You know, if you were talking to colleagues at AAR or OAH or, or AHA, what would you what would you want them to really think about? Well, it would be a historiography that uh, I, I really dislike the phrase take seriously, um, because I don't think that is adequate. But it's a it, it is a it would be a historiography that looks very carefully at these presences, the gods, angels, saints, and so forth, as agents in history and tries to see what they're doing. You know, what is it when the Virgin Mary comes or uh, people talk about uh, angels appearing? You know, what is it in these moments to resist the temptation to explain it away or to, to immediately transpose it into a category of the social or psychological and therefore say that it's irrelevant to history? But to actually look at the ways in which um, you know these figures are consequential. Before we end, what's next as you move on from um, from this project? Where where is this taking you? Well, as you know, the book ends with a chapter on the sexual abuse scandal uh, called "Events of Abundant Evil," uh, and there I try to and there I try to complicate the notion of presence. I mean, at no point do I ever say that presences are good or that the consequences of presences are simply good or simply bad. I mean, another thing I think is that it challenge these thinking about with a matrix of presence, as I say, uh, challenges those sorts of judgments that religion is good, bad, or whatever. But I have been doing a lot of research on um, uh, survivors, uh, people whose experiences, and I'm thinking now. I'm working now on a book on uh, the 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 place of the questions of religion, trauma, and violence in American Catholicism in the post World War II world. So this is getting me into the deeper into the sex abuse uh, crisis, but also it's allowing me to ask questions about its relationship to, say, the definitions of trauma, the politics of suffering and pain um, mm. in the United States, and other questions. Because like these, like these special real presences, and, you know, they're always caught up in the historical world, the social world. So uh, I'm curious to now take it in that direction. So that's what I'll be looking at. Okay. We've been talking today 
with Robert Orsi, Professor of Religious Studies and History and Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University about his new book out this year from Harvard University Press, History and Presence. Bob, thank you. It's been a a joy, and uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to do this. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great talking to you, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.